Good morning, church. My name is Randa Noble, and I'm going to be reading this scripture this morning, which is found in 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 16, I believe. It's not up here, so I'm glad I brought my phone. Uh, After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Well, where do you come from? David asked him, and he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Well, what happened? David asked, tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on the Mount of Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and the chariots and their drivers were in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can, and I said, what can I do? He asked, well, who are you? I'm an Amalekite, I answered. And he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, and, but I'm still alive. So I stood there beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and his men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and the army of the Lord and the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. David had said to him, Your blood is on your head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. I want to thank you for being here this morning on another cold Sunday morning. There is such value in gathering to worship the Lord. When I think of the regular practice of church, I think of it not as like a momentary spiritual hit, but this habit-forming reality that shapes us and reminds us, even as we were singing, I'm thinking through what Greg is saying as he shepherds us through the songs, what the words of the songs are teaching me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Like just hearing those truths, declaring the, the creedal song that we sang, that is, that is life-forming, and regularly doing that is so significant for your spiritual life and for mine. So just again, encouraging you and exhorting you to to engage in in, in the local church like you're doing right now and remembering how important your ministry is. Again, you're not just a consumer, even though this moment it's me speaking and not you, but think of all the little conversations, moments of prayer, greetings you can do, probably some of you already been doing as the service was going to start and as this morning will go on. So, so glad you're here uh, with us today. We are 
Kicking back into 2 Samuel, we took a break, went to the New Testament after 1 Samuel and did the book of James. We hit some Christmas themes and a couple topics, and now we are kicking full gear into 2 Samuel. We do what's called, big word, expository preaching. It's just a fancy word that just means we're trying to draw out. We're trying to let the text tell us what it wants to know. Said maybe more theologically, we want to hear what God wants us to know from his word week after week, forming us, shaping us, directing us. And so we will do what we've done regularly is read through the text and discuss it together. This, this week, it's a bit of a transition text. The, the first 10 verses are really just showing the conclusion of the era of King Saul and introducing the era of King David. And then at the end, there's these two themes that are addressed that I want to focus on with you this morning about grief and about a respect for authority. But before we look at those, pray with me. Father, you are so good to us. We just sang about how helpless we were to do anything with our sin. And that the gift of your son cleanses us. We just sang about the, the beautiful, powerful truth that you are Trinitarian in nature, that you died for our sins, about the beauty of the Holy Church, about the resurrection when you return. These deep truths that form and shape us. So now we ask, Father, that you help us in your word. To open our eyes and soften our hearts or motivate our hands and our feet to respond to the things about which you speak. And that we would not just hear them correctly, but respond to them appropriately as your children. Thank you that you accommodated to us by speaking these words. So, Father, minister to us by your spirit through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 1 to 10 are really just this connection between transition, where the story of the books of Samuel transitions from King Saul to King David. And two things happened at the end of 1 Samuel that the opening of 2 Samuel assumes we remember. And it's been a little while. So let me explain those two things. David is reintroduced. By mentioning his return from recovering the women and children and possessions the Amalekites had stolen. If you remember in 1 Samuel 30, if you don't remember, I'll remind you. Israel had taken a bit of a defeat and the Amalekites had literally taken women, children, and all the plunder. And almost miraculously, if you remember. Like these weak, frail soldiers who were exhausted. God empowered to gain back what had been lost including David's own family. It was, it was a moment of God showing favor upon his children. And a great victory was won. But then secondly, and this is where 1 Samuel ends, Saul is killed. He's gone. And Saul is formally and officially announced as having been killed in war. And that leads us to this little encounter between David and and this man that appears. And it's an interesting one. And if you're reading closely, as some of you have, because I've gotten emails, as people read ahead and say, wait a second, 
This fellow's story doesn't sound the same as what we read in 1 Samuel 31. Good reading. Is he lying? Is he telling greater detail uh, that, that could be accommodated and put together in some way, collated? Those are good questions. We don't hear from him long because by the end of these 16 verses, he's gone. But let's look at some of the details. Verse 1 reminds us that David returned from striking down the Amalekites. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp. This is key language. With his clothes torn and dust on his head. So if you saw a bunch of people get out of a car and walk into church, and they were all wearing black, what would you think they're going to? A wedding or a funeral? You would think funeral. Like You would see all those formal dark clothing and no full well that is funeral attire this is funeral attire this is mourning attire the text is wanting you to know before you've ever learned anything about him or he said a word that he's mourning now again he could be totally playing an act he could totally see that david and his men are at camp and before he comes around the bend he does all he needs to do to make sure that he's looking the part but we don't know that He's dressed not like a soldier, but a mourner. Symbolic attire of grief. Interestingly, he recognizes David, treats him with honor, and even emphasizes the death of Jonathan. He knows details. He knows that Jonathan was close. He speaks specifically about Saul and Jonathan to David. He emphasizes in verse 6, he goes, and it... And I happened to be, which again, might just be totally fictitious, which it seems like to me. He even mentions chariots, none of which were mentioned in 1 Samuel 31. And many would argue, historians and commentators, that the terrain in which that battle happened would not be conducive to the use of chariots. But David himself gives us a clue when he takes them through what looks like a lawyer running somebody through an onslaught of questions. Like many would have to argue that the format of this interaction between David and the Amalekite is one that is loaded with back and forth questioning. But that statement that seems the most confounding is when he says he found Saul leaning on his spear and was asked to end his life. And of course he says he did. He admits it. That's not what 1 Samuel 31 described. 1 Samuel 31 said, I'm reading it, the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, not to some Amalekite, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows, that's a way of saying God, not God's covenanted people, will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified, rightly so, and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. Again, it could be, and people have argued this, that this account from the Amalekite is a detailed account that in some way could be 
collaborated in, 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 a, in a fitting way, but much of it seems like it is a fabrication. He's lying. In the, in the end, it seems that this man seeks the favor of David for honoring King Saul's wishes, claims to be bringing him the royal crown and the royal armband, but most likely was plundering himself. Saul, the slaughtered king and decided, I think I'm going to take a few things of his possessions. The point of the story, though, for us, if we're just trying to get the gist of what 2 Samuel 1 is trying to do, is to make clear a couple things. Saul's officially dead. His reign is over. He doesn't want us to spend too much time on this man or this incident because it moves on itself. The moment there's an interaction, before David even responds to the man's account and what he did, it moves on to David's response. But Saul is dead. And David, and this is, I think, important to note, David had nothing to do with it. Because what 1 Samuel showed over and over again, that David would not touch the Lord's anointed. That's the language he used over and over again. And at the end of this passage for today, he says that again. David completely honored the Lord's wishes in honoring God's king even if God's king was less than honorable himself. That's what this story wants us to know. What I want to focus on, though, is the things that happen next. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at the details of verse 11, verses 11 and 12. Because I think these verses, the reactions of David and his men, teach us the importance of human grief and lament. Look at the response. Then David and all the men with him, again, after hearing the announcement of the death of Saul and his sons, took hold of their clothes and tore them. Now, that sounds strange, but if you were getting ready for a funeral, you would selectively choose what you would put on in the ancient world. That was the sign of mourning. I mean, if you're just going to translate that, they put on black clothes, which doesn't sound strange to you. This might sound strange, but translate that. They put themselves in garments that reflected brokenness, and they symbolically do it by shredding their own clothing. In one sense, it's not just some emotionalism reaction. This was the norm. Notice, remember back in verse 2, the, the man arrived with his clothes torn. You would not go to a funeral without seeing some image of that today. If, if in our world it's much more by colors and the, and, the, and, the, and the niceness of the garment, in the ancient world it would literally be so. You would literally go to a funeral with something ripped, which again sounds so strange to us, but think different cultures. Think different ways of communicating the same thing. They, they made their clothes the garments of mourners. Verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. They mourned. Notice Saul is listed first, not Jonathan. God's king was listed first. And the Jonathan 
was listed. Next, a close, intimate friend of David. But then all of the death. And it wasn't just a few minutes where they cried, wiped their eyes, and then they went on their way. They did a morning service. These, these very tough men, they weren't wimps. They weren't sitting around like just reading stories and, and, and crying and having croissants. They had just come back from a massive, victorious battle. And they grieved. They mourned. What place does grief and lament have in your life, Christian? Like, don't just think about what they did. Think about what they modeled. And let me ask you, where does grief fit in your life? Where does lament fit? Is there a place for that? Or do you try to shove that away? Remember the kind of culture we're in. Remember what we're being enculturated to do. Everything has got to be a perfect ending. Everything's got to be clear. You watch a movie or an episode, generally speaking, it's all going to get wrapped up in the end. Happy thoughts. Every parent wants to take away the owie or the pain, if they can, from their children. And there's a natural impulse there. Is there place in our culture for lament, for grieving? And what about in the life of a Christian? Forget the culture for a minute, other than the fact that you're cooking in, in, in that culture and drinking its water and breathing its air. But in the life of the Christian, is there room for this? I remember a, a funeral not long ago in this very room, and a man stood right where I'm standing, and he didn't, you could tell it was a friend of a brother in this church. Dear Christian man in our church passed away, and one of his friends, who's not part of this church, was up here giving testimony. It was a beautiful testimony of the life of a faithful man who evangelistically showed the love of Christ to his neighbors. And this was like a neighbor. Not necessarily a man who's thinking biblically and Christianly. And he was trying to rebuke himself for his tears. And I'm sitting right down there and I'm thinking, no, I didn't say that. No. Your tears are actually important. Your tears are good. Have a place for grief. What, what is that? Maybe even our culture, some kind of masculinity. Can a man not cry? That's, that's, that's what women are to do? Really? Well, let me, let me ask you if that's what you see in the Bible. Let me ask you if that's what you see with Jesus. One of the most fam famous Depiction of grief in the Bible is the funeral of Lazarus in John 11. It is a remarkable story. I have used it before in funeral services because it is so fitting. Jesus completely understands the resurrection. By the end of it, he's pointing Lazarus, his family, to the resurrection. He doesn't just say, well, you know what? We'll see him again. Let's go have some coffee. Hold back the tears. You don't see that at all. Everyone is mourning. They're following the grieving process in that culture. And Jesus completely joins in. In fact, he shows up to the tomb. The guy that's about to resurrect him. The guy that knows the truth fully. 
It's not like he's like, I believe the resurrection, but sometimes it makes me wonder. Like he knows this to be the case. He literally is the resurrection and the life. And he comes to the tomb. And the word used, that Greek word used to describe Jesus' actions is the most emotional word the New Testament can give. In fact, commentators don't even know what to do with it. I wrote a commentary on it. I know that. I remember reading Luther's translation. He, he used the German word Gnade, which kind of is like yelling. It's like, the, it's like the German, and he just kept circling around. I don't know what he's doing, but I think it's more angry than just sadness. So is, 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 it, is it anger? Is he, is he angry at the brokenness of the world? Is he looking at the sinfulness? And he's like, what in the world? You guys chose this over God? This is the result. My friend is dead. But it's also this emotional outpouring. Hey, can Jesus can do that? Then should anyone, but maybe in our culture, especially a man, come up here when their friend is gone and feel any kind of shame and crying? Was Jesus less of a man? Are you as courageous as he is? Are you as strong as he is? There's other passages that the Bible uses to talk about grief. God promises in Revelation 21, he promises to remove our grief at his return, which assumes, by the way, that it's legit. He's not saying, hey, 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 there's no crying here. There's no, he didn't say that. He's like, I'm assuming, I'm accepting, I know you are dealing with grief and lament. And guess what I will do? Oh, man or a woman, I will remove that personally. There will be no more tear. He's not just talking to the, to, 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 to the, to the female gender when he says that. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Jesus. Several psalms teach us the place and the nature of grief and mourning. Psalm 31 is a good example, but there's a good dozen psalms that describe, that teach us to grieve in our prayers. The apostles, like the apostle Peter, wept with remorse. Matthew 26, when he betrayed Jesus, it says he broke out in weeping. Yes. In fact, there's an entire book called Lamentations that is essential for Christians to read. This glimpse into the heartfelt response of David and his men teaches us about the depth of humanity and gives us permission to experience all the ranges of human emotion. I think one thing I'm learning as I grow in my faith as a Christian is that Christianity is explaining to me what it means to be human. And that can mean all the joys that come with the fruit of the gospel, with life in the spirit, with the fellowship of the saints, but it allows me not just to fear. I can, because I know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, because I know that all suffering will be redeemed, it allows me to go into that, to feel it in the fullness of my humanity, to give that to the Lord in our brokenness, just as Jesus Christ himself did. As fully humans, there should be moments of great laughter 
We celebrated our son's 17th birthday yesterday, and the Timoti family is our family too, and we're sitting around playing games, and I see just huge laughter and giggles. And that's the way it should be. There can also be deep sadness, that crying where no words come. You, you, don't, you don't even know what to think. You're just trying to get your bearings. You're just kind of like, like you're stumbling on ice. You're just trying to grab something and hold on. And I know people in this room have felt that overwhelming sense of loss and hurt. There can be seasons of this too, seasons of joy and seasons of suffering. And Jesus knew all that and shepherds us to see all that. And you read verses 11 and 12 and you say, yes, Lord. There are times when we look at the brokenness in our world, in our lives, and we weep and mourn. Not without hope, but we weep and mourn. So Christians laugh with one another. Weep with one another. Paul said that in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So if I could have paused that beautiful testimony of a man who just passed away in our church, I would have said, no, don't be afraid to cry. You're human. So cry. Because if Jesus were here, he would cry. I, I think this also begs the question, if, if we look at the text, we see the formality of what was happening. I think there's something to be said for the formality of grief. Not just that personal or interpersonal grief, but, but, but let me give you an example. Or let me give you an example by asking a question. For whom are funerals... Like, who are they for? Is it just for the family? Or is it also for the church? Now, I wonder if a, a growth in our culture would be that when there are funerals, we all feel that. Even if we're like, yeah, I mean, I volunteered with them seven years ago at VBS in the summer, but I really didn't know them or barely know their family. You are their family. And there is a formality that is good and proper for Christians in the midst of dealing with grief and death. Disciples of Jesus who are being formed into his image should grow deeper into all the realities of being human. And human flourishing means also human suffering. And let us be the most human, as our Lord modeled for us. The last few verses of our text, it's really the judgment of the Amalekite. David said to the young man who brought him the report, look at verse 13 with me, where are you from? And it's interesting, the Amalekite says, I am the son of a foreigner. That's what the NIV translates it as. And that's not a bad translation, but the, but the actual term there means he's a sojourner, meaning it's kind of like he's a resident alien. It was like me in Great Britain. I was totally allowed to be there, but I had, my passport said no recourse to public funds. I couldn't vote. 
I, if I needed whatever, some kind of social security disability, I wouldn't get a penny of it. But I was totally allowed to be there, totally allowed to partake in the nation. But I was a sojourner. I was passing through. But I, but, but I was expected to abide by the laws of the culture. So that's an interesting confession that he just said. It means he's, even though he's a Melekite, by his ethnicity or nationality, he actually is supposed to be abiding by the laws of Israel. The moment he says that, he's in trouble. And then David's questions change a bit. Notice what he says. David asked him, verse 14, why weren't you afraid? Now, remember what I just said to you. He's asking this because he knows the man is supposed to know. It'd be like if your teenager came home with a speeding ticket and you said to him or her, when you were going 75 in a school zone, why weren't you afraid? Because you know what the speed limit was. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Notice he's speaking this robust theological language that's assumed in knowledge and law of God's people. And David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. And, and, and notice, notice what the, the last verse says, 16. For David had said to him, now the narrator is explaining why this judgment was valid by recounting what David had said. Notice that. Your blood be on your own head. That's another way of saying you should have known better. You alone are responsible for the judgment you're going to receive. Now, we, we can see that as the closing of the death of Saul and transitioning now to the life of David. But just reflect on that for a moment and, and, and hear this. The judgment of the Amalekite teaches us to respect the authorities God places over us. The clear point in this text, in that scene, is that God, that those God places over us are to be respected. So let me ask you this question, Christians. Do you respect and submit to the authorities God has placed over you? And what authorities might those be? We could hit on a few. There could be authorities in the home. If you are a child in here and you have a mom and dad, Scripture is clear, kids. One of the Ten Commandments is honoring your father and mothers. And that is an authority God has placed over you. And as hard as that may be, that is significant for you, even as a little kid in elementary school, of learning to honor God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We as adults can too. The, our covenant of marriage directs us to be mutually in submission to one another in ways that reflect a love of spouse, a respect of spouse that Ephesians 5 and beyond would talk about. How about our work, your supervisor, the company you work for? Again, remember David. Saul wasn't like this pristine ruler that was easy to serve. If your boss threw a spear at you at a staff lunch, then maybe you would understand a little bit better. 
Yet notice, he never would touch the Lord's anointed. I didn't go back and look, but it'd be interesting to see in 1 Samuel, how many times did that get stated? So that even now, when somebody else does, David can enact judgment because I never did that. That is God's authority over me, whether he's a good authority or bad. How about our civil government? Your governing leaders, Romans 13. How do we submit to them? Not just because they hold the sword, but because they are God's authorities over us. My wife is unable to utilize her Facebook now with her limited function of hand, and so she was wanting me to respond to one of our friends, and I was on Facebook, and I saw a post of somebody that used to be part of this church but moved away, and I kind of scrolled through his comments, and it was kind of hard to, to see what I, what I saw. There, there would be these posts of Christian verses of God is love, and be, be thankful today, be generous, and the very next post is these libtards Let's go, Brandon. And I'm like, did you not read the post you put 27 minutes earlier about being grateful and thankful? What would David say? To treating in our words, in our hearts, even if diametrically opposed to someone's policies. What would God want your heart to do in response? Would he want you to rip on them on public forums? What do you think that would be appropriate? Would God say, hey, I may agree with you on this or that, but can I ask you a question? Who do you think you are? I think those are questions that Christians need to answer. Otherwise, we just actually look just like the non-Christians who are of our same political persuasion. What about authorities in the church? Hebrews says this, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. First of all, that's a very scary passage for me, one of your pastor elders to read. Because the moment you might think, whoa, submit to the authority, I guess I'm one of those, but did you see who my authority is? that I have to give an account. Hebrews 17, 13, 17 ends this way. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. But that's all of it. That's not just, that's not just, there are 12 men who serve in the office of pastor, elder in this church, but they submit as well, ultimately to one another, and not just to the Lord, but even to the congregation, the membership of this congregation. Everybody has somebody to whom they report, even in this church. I don't ask for a day off to take my wife to an appointment without getting permission from the elder chair. Everybody has an authority. That is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. That in our homes, there's a submissiveness and service in the way we engage at work, in the way we, in, in society, and our, our, our civil leaders, the way we speak about them, the way we pray for them, even in disagreement. Again, think of what David endured. 
we not lay a hand or even allow someone to speak negatively about that leader. Imagine if every Christian right now just did not speak negatively, even if they would never vote for such and such a person. Imagine how that would change political discourse. And in our church, that all of us submit ourselves to the leaders God placed over us. Just like the king, King David, over and over again, submitted himself to those above him. Let's pray. Father, we want to be formed and changed. We want to see that grief is actually what it means to be human and grow in our capacity to grieve and mourn, lament. Help us to laugh with laughing is what we are to do with, with many around us and help us to cry or struggle and suffer, knowing full well that our Lord Jesus would do the same. And help us, as we saw in the text today, to acknowledge the authorities placed over us. Lord, you are our king. You are the God's king that the books of Samuel ultimately point to. So help us to read the story of the prequel to the coming of Jesus and to be motivated to respond to the ways that you guide us to live differently and to live like Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.